0: Okay, welcome. It's 11 o'clock, so we'll get started. If you could take a seat. Welcome to 11th hour. Um, Again, if you're just walking in now, there's some handouts in the back, or Joanna, who's sitting here in the front, um, could hand you one if you put up your hand. Um, Also a reminder to please turn off or silence your cell phone if you have one. Um, And if you have questions at the end, uh, Diana is going to point you out, and I'll run around with the mic, so hopefully you can wait for me to run through the aisles. Um, Okay. If there is one refrain I heard again and again during my two years at the writer's workshop, it was this. Writing is hard. Those three banal words seem to be about the most accurate way to put it. If you want to get crazy, you might even add a really. Writing is really hard. Today, Diana Getch will discuss the practice of writing, how to establish it, and how to sustain it. Diana has taught at colleges, conferences, and MFA programs in addition to teaching one-on-one and group workshops in New York City. She is also the editor of Jane Street Press, a poetry press she founded in 2001. She is the author of several poetry collections, most recently Nameless Boy. Her work has appeared in many leading journals and anthologies, including The New Yorker, The Gettysburg Review, The American Scholar, Best American Poetry, The Pushcart Prize Anthology, Among her honors are fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the Donald Murray Prize. Please join me in welcoming Diana Getch. Is
1: that okay? OK. So, I'll do a quick sound check. How is this? Can you hear me? Okay, great. How about in the cheap seats? It's okay. Okay, quick reminder electronic devices, I'm turning mine off. Could you please join me? Otherwise, your ring will be uh, on the internet, (laughs) which could be interesting. Thank you, Anna. Uh, Anna does a lot, more than you might think. (laughs) <laughs> to, to put this together, so thank you. We've been in correspondence uh, probably months ago. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read, so I wrote something. I'm one of these people who are much smarter on the page than extemporaneously. Some people aren't, um, but I am. Uh, and uh, it's going to go about half an hour. I, I'll try to keep you alive. And uh, after that, uh, we will have a robust Q&A where we'll all experience how intelligent and good-looking the group is. Actually writing the outer, inner, and secret practice. Several years ago I taught at a rather hokey writing conference in the Smoky Mountains where the director paid you in cash, slipping a wad of bills into your pocket when you arrived and held talent shows and theme nights. If I didn't dress as a pirate, I was told, it would be frowned on. On the last day, the director sat the faculty on stage behind a long table with a skirt around it so you wouldn't see our legs, and conducted a panel where we all took turns speaking about the writing life. How cliched and ridiculous, I thought. Where's that pirate outfit? But when I got up there and looked out at the participants in the audience, I realized something. What lay beneath all their questions on writing, questions I'd fielded all week, was a much more basic question nobody was going to ask. How come you're up there and we're out here? (laughs) How is it, in other words, that you folks are actually writing book after book, whereas we? have only been trying to write, unsure if we're even meant to be writers. This question strikes me as a good one. Maybe at a certain point, the only question worth asking. Let's get talent out of the way. In sports, any coach will tell us you can't teach talent, and in the writing game, there's not much point in talking about it. Whether I have more talent than some students and less talent than others, What's certain is that whatever talent I have has had more of a chance to come to the surface than whatever talent they have. It's also certain that plenty of students do and say things I can't, and the goal of art is individuation, to write a poem or story or essay that only you could have written. Most are writing poems anyone could have written, which may have something to do with lack of talent, but definitely has much to do with lack of experience. Anyway, the solution to why I was on one side of the table and conference participants on the other had little to do with talent. I hope you'll believe me. Nor did the answer lie in the catalog of idiosyncrasies that each panelist pitched into as we spoke in turn about about our writing lives. This one goes swimming before she writes. That one writes in the morning when he has the most courage. This other does well with a deadline, a desk with no window, and a glass of burgundy. At least we were talking about how we lived, and that was a beginning. Some in the audience had MFAs, yet that hadn't gotten them anywhere near our side of the table. Did you know that five years after receiving their MFAs, four out of five graduates are no longer writing? I just made that up. But I'd like to see... But I'd like to see this statistic. I just I'd like to see this statistic. And I sense that MFA programs wouldn't. A few years ago, I rode in a van from a small New England airport to attend an MFA residency. In the row in front of me sat two writers about to graduate, one confiding to the other, as soon as I get this degree, I'm going to take six months off from writing. At least she was being honest, and I'll be honest with you. My first thought overhearing this was, good, more beer for us. It occurs to me that the literature we know best comes from authors about whose writing apprenticeship we know least. How did Shakespeare, James Joyce, or Leo Tolstoy acquire their craft and live as writers? We know they all did it, else we wouldn't have their books. Chekhov, Austen, Flaubert all figured out what was needed in order to get themselves expressed, something thousands of contemporary people take dead aim at in writing conferences and programs but seldom acquire. That something is what I'm calling actually writing. I have a feeling that what rarely gets taught can at least be talked about, which is what I'll try to do this morning in terms of three practices. The outer practice. The outer practice of writing has nothing to do with craft, but it might have something to do with talent. If you are untalented at something, it is unlikely you will have a burning desire to do it. Exceptions might be in the areas of sex and running for president. (laughs) But generally, if you have a broken leg, you're not going to want to run a mile. When children are told they can be anything they dream of, it's kind of ridiculous and kind of true. The ridiculous part is obvious, but the true part is that genuine inspiration doesn't visit the unqualified. It is always a call, however outrageous, to become the full expression of who we are. The other kind of dreaming, and this might be where sex and running for president come in, is churned up by the ego. The $64,000 question that comes with any burning desire, is it inspiration or is it ego, is exactly the question here. Do you want to write do (laughs) you? I heard one yes. (laughs) I therefore can go on. (laughs) In Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, the legendary German poet puts the question to his hopeful correspondent, quite boldly. And then I'm going to read this is just the quote that you have in the handout. Everybody has a handout? Anybody not have a handout? See, I'm an old teacher, so I can say anybody not have a handout? Is somebody helping the people who don't have handouts? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Appreciate that. <clears throat> So this is Rilke's letters, his actual letters, although I don't, I don't know if he was ever asked to produce them, but it'd be interesting if they discovered it was all fiction. All the better. Okay, so here's a quote from Rilke. You ask whether your verses are good. You ask me. You have asked others before. You send them to magazines. You compare them with other poems. And you are disturbed when certain editors reject your efforts. That that would never happen here, I know. Now, since you have allowed me to advise you, I beg you to give up all that. You are looking outward. And that, above all, you should not do now. Nobody can counsel and help you. Nobody. There is only one single way. Go into yourself. Search for the reason that bids you write. Find out whether it is spreading out its roots in the deepest places of your heart. Acknowledge to yourself whether you would have to die if it were denied you to write. This above all, ask yourself in the stillest hour of your night, must I write? Delve into yourself for a deep answer. And if this should be affirmative, If you may meet this earnest question with a strong and simple, I must, then build your life according to this necessity. Your life, even into its most indifferent and slightest hour, must be a sign of this urge and a testimony to it. In this passage, Rilke is taking an axe and driving a wedge between ego and inspiration. My own way of doing this is to tell students that poetry wants just one thing. Everything. Granted, Rilke is a crazy romantic, and I suppose I might sound dramatic also, but the logic is pretty solid. Give your life to art, and it will give you in return an artist's life. Outside of the promise of an artist's life, there are no guarantees. Van Gogh didn't sell a single painting in his lifetime, Emily Dickinson didn't publish a poem. Taking the converse, if you're not willing to build your life according to the necessity of writing, nothing you learn here or elsewhere about craft, no matter how talented you are, will take root. Every writer can tell you how their lives intersect with Rilke's advice. It's not always romantic. Some drift into writing. They like it, start doing it more and more and one day, perhaps having begun writing in the morning and now looking up and seeing it's gotten dark, conclude, okay, I must be a writer. That's actually what happened to me. Still, at some point, in order to commit to writing, we all have to rearrange our lives. In 2007, I left public school teaching after 21 years when I was at the top of the salary scale, about to make $100,000. I took a poet in residence post at a college in Oklahoma where I made less than a third of that income, but the workload was small, and the time I had for writing resulted in poems of a higher magnitude than any I'd written before. These are the ones that I collected in Nameless Boy, which Anna mentioned. The college asked me to stay another year, and I did, after which time I became unemployed and have been ever since. That's not exactly true because I've been writing while cobbling together whatever I could in order to keep writing, teaching at conferences, visiting writer gigs, workshops in my apartment, collecting unemployment helped until it ran out, as did winning an NEA fellowship, as did getting hired to write Life in Transition, for which the American scholar paid me $1,000 for each batch of six columns. I could have taken other better paying jobs, at least the ones that would hire a trans person, but I wouldn't be writing. There have been medical bills. My savings have dwindled. It's been stressful, to say the least. And I've had to answer Rilke's question, must I write, probably on a weekly basis. I also make some money teaching people individually through email and Skype. This year, several writers, all of whom happened to be women, hired me to help edit their poetry manuscripts. Actually, women from New Jersey. I don't don't know what's going on in New Jersey. There was plenty to critique, but the most important thing I had to tell each of them concerned their outer practice The main thing holding back these poems, particularly the more ambitious ones, the poems poets grow on and become known for, was lack of time devoted to them. The poems were lazy, sorely lacking in development and integration. Lazy poems do not imply lazy people, and these are bright, sophisticated women. One is a wife and mother of small children who sacrificed dearly to get her MFA degree and does all she can to squeeze in 20 minutes a day of writing? Two are school teachers, in addition to being wives and mothers. Their manuscripts reflected well over a decade of work, most of their poems coming from prompts at writing conferences they attended once or twice a year. I lost my space. While it's not my place to judge anyone's life's choices, and I'm not about to tell women to abandon their families, still, 20 minutes a day won't cut it. Thoreau had a Harvard education and a mentor by the name of Emerson, and it still took two and a half years in solitude to write Walden, the toughest sentence of which might be, let the children cry. The one exception in the group was a woman named Sandy. She sent me a terrific manuscript, ripe for editing and shaping, and the book was scooped up for publication soon after. Sandy is a mother, but her son is full grown. She works, but she owns her own business and can set her work hours. Her outer practice was fully in place, and it shows in her poems where her ambitions and imaginative claims had been given the time they needed to be realized. Virginia Woolf is the spirit lurking behind much of this, and next to Rilke's Letters to a Young Poet, Woolf's A Room of One's Own is a second masterpiece about the outer practice. In 1929, asked to give a talk on the subject of women in fiction, Wolf opted not to play the literary critic, and instead to play the economist, looking soberly at the life conditions involved in why men had thus far outpaced women on the stage of literature, announcing, and then I'll read, there'll be a few quotes from uh, your handout um, for Virginia Woolf. So this is her. All I could do was to offer you an opinion upon one minor point. A woman must have money and a room of her own if she is to write fiction. And that, as you will see, leaves the great problem of the true nature of woman and the true nature of fiction unsolved." Wolf points out, with the subtlety of a novelist of her caliber, how being in a society that thwarts the outer practice inevitably affects the inner craft. And this is Wolf again. Intellectual freedom depends on material things. Poetry depends upon intellectual freedom. And women have always been poor, not for 200 years merely, but from the beginning of time. Women have had less intellectual freedom than the sons of Athenian slaves. Women, then, have not had a dog's chance of writing poetry. This is why I have laid so much stress on money and a room of one's own. For contrast, she cites Austen, Jane Austen, and Shakespeare as authors whose comparative freedom in life enabled writing that was free of internal impediments. And as again as Wolf. Here was a woman writing without hate, without bitterness, without fear, without protect, without preaching. That was how Shakespeare wrote, I thought, looking at Antony and Cleopatra. And when people compare Shakespeare and Jane Austen, they may mean that the minds of both had consumed all impediments. And for that reason, we do not know Jane Austen, and we do not know Shakespeare. And for that reason, Jane Austen pervades every word that she wrote, and so does Shakespeare. The same holds true for contemporary people and not just women. If you lack an outer practice, you won't have a dog's chance of actually writing. Whether it is the case of being starved by your life circumstances or your culture or of you starving yourself, the result is the same. The inner practice. Once we've answered Rilke's question in the affirmative and we've given writing a privileged position in our lives, now what? It is time to engage the inner practice, the activity of actually writing. You might suppose this is where we call on what we have been taught about craft, the vast collections of instructions, techniques, pointers, shortcuts, the kinds of things we hear and take notes on at workshop tables when we get feedback on what we wrote. But hold it right there, what we wrote, If what we wrote was a novel or even a single poem, how did what we wrote get written in the first place? I regard the issues and techniques that go into generating even a first draft of a piece of writing as far more important than workshop feedback afterwards. It's not because I have a problem with being told to lop off this, develop that, or rewrite this other thing in the third person. It's because the critiquing and editing at the heart of the current workshop culture are not at the heart of actually writing. Again, I have nothing against editing, but it can always be learned. Actually writing requires not so much learning, but training. I am sorry to say that most poems I see brought into workshops are dead poems. The poet may have drafted it many times, but if it went through the wrong door in an early draft, which is frequently the case, it's already been dead for a while. It's no fun for anyone telling people their dead poems are dead. But it's even worse pretending otherwise and going around the table, finding ways to compliment or constructively criticize it. Unwarranted praise takes away a writer's path and is more poisonous than uncalled for cruelty, though I'm not a fan of either. How many books on writing amount to collection of prompts beforehand and revision tips for afterwards? There is nothing inherently wrong with a prompt, though I prefer the word assignment. I give assignments all the time, and I'm known as something of an assignment machine. But most people manage to write in the same way, same tone and sentence lengths, same reliance on certain devices and avoidance on other devices, no matter the subject, mistaking their habitual patterns for their, quote, voice. Meantime, their only subject amounts to them writing, them reminding us of what Thoreau called the stale cheese of who they are, as if we need reminding. The assignment doesn't matter, I tell students. Your best writing could result from the worst assignment. For example, describe that table. And you could get pure sludge from an intriguing assignment. For example, write a poem entitled, Mothers Against Stonehenge. The important thing is your approach to an assignment, any assignment, and ultimately to the blank page. The cultivating of that approach is the inner practice. I have been teaching a generative workshop at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival and in living rooms and art centers around the country for the past eight years. I call it the Free Writing Intensive, an umbrella term for the inner practice, for what to do hour after hour in a room of one's own if we are to be productive and grow as writers. My key instructional text in the workshop doesn't come from a how-to book on writing, but from one writer describing another writer's process. It is Robert Bly's explanation of William Stafford's Golden Thread, and it's the Rosetta Stone of the Inner Practice. So I'll read again from your handout. You could read along. One of Stafford's most amazing gifts to poetry is his theme of the Golden Thread, He believes that whenever you set a detail down in language, it becomes the end of a thread. And every detail, the sound of the lawnmower, the memory of your father's hands, a crack you once heard in lake ice, the jogger hurtling herself past your window, will lead you to amazing riches. William Blake said, I give you the end of a golden string. Only wind it into a ball. It will lead you in at heaven's gate built in Jerusalem's wall. I asked Stafford one day, do you believe that every golden thread will lead us through Jerusalem's wall, or do you love particular threads? He replied, no, every thread. He said, any little impulse is accepted and enhanced. The stance to take reading or writing is neutral, ready, susceptible to now. Only the golden string knows where it is going, and the role for a writer or reader is one of following, not imposing. Stafford remarked, however, that purposeful writers may pull too hard. One has to be careful not to break the thread. For four years during World War II, William Stafford was interred in a concentration camp for conscientious objectors, where he was given a small bunk plenty of writing supplies, and was woken up each morning at 5.30. After those four years, he continued for the rest of his life to rise at 5.30 a.m. and write, and he was the freest of writers. He had high standards for he selected, uh, when he selected for publication, but when asked how he could write new poems every day, he famously said, I lower my standards. The truth is, we're not always going to get to heaven's gate, but it's equally true that we don't know when we will arrive there, which is why Stafford recommends being ready, neutral, susceptible to now. He refers to it as a stance to take, and maintaining that stance while writing, whatever the subject, is how we practice. For Stafford, writing has as much to do with what is out there, the jogger hurtling past the window than anything inside our heads, and we must allow ourselves to be led by the golden thread. Even if we're revising, it's because we lost the thread in the first place and need to catch it again. We could spend this whole session or the rest of our writing lives with this little passage on Stafford, but for now, I'll just add a few pieces of my own advice regarding the inner practice. One, don't judge your practice. There are going to be bad days, even bad years. The point is to put in the miles, which makes bad days equally as important as good days. Anyone who's been an athlete or a dancer knows this very well. Um, You put in the miles. If you've told yourself to write for three hours, Stay the whole three hours so that you'll be there for the breakthrough in the last two minutes. If there isn't a breakthrough, don't judge your practice. Not judging is actually hardest to do on the good days. Coming to conclusions about yourself based on a good day will make it harder to have ordinary days. This is why the lives of lottery winners go down the toilet. Two. Don't concern yourself with inspiration. Inspiration comes or it doesn't. If you're in an airport, the movies, the motor vehicle bureau, and you're suddenly inspired to write, go right ahead. But know that the most frequent and trustworthy insight will come during regular practice, which lays the ground for inspiration, and which normally starts with no particular inspiration. Three, don't just learn. Train. Writing, a mentor once said to me, is the only art form people think they can do just by having feelings. Nobody falls in love or loses their spouse or changes their gender and thinks they can pick up the violin and book a concert gig the next week. But some kind of inspiration strikes a person. Out comes the poem, the memoir, And you've got to read it. You have to read it. Put everything down, please, and read this. Charles Frazier waited 10 years after his MFA to publish his stupendous novel, Cold Mountain. He needed those 10 years to become the writer who could write Cold Mountain. Do you know how much training it takes for a dancer to properly execute and land a triple pirouette? She's not going to get there by reading books. Four, read books, and for the right reason. Emerson said, books are to inspire. I agree, and furthermore would add that reading for any other purpose is a perversion. Read the great writers, but find your great writer. Find out how they lived and who inspired them, and read those writers. It is far more important for you to read your lineage than to be well read. Five, look for mentors, not just teachers. Teachers might have things to say worth noting, so note them. But when you meet your mentor, put down your pen, stop taking notes, lest you miss something crucial. For mentors transmit to us a way to be a writer. William Zinzer did this for me, as did Stephen Dunn. They shared a wealth of craft and insight, but the most valuable thing they shared was themselves and how they were in the world as artists. Rilke's mentor wasn't even a writer, but rather a sculptor, the great Rodin. There was a teacher in Iowa for a long time named Marvin Bell. Anybody know Marvin? You know Marvin? Marvin Bell. Marvin understood he was training writers, maybe because his original training as an artist came as a jazz trumpet player. If someone were holding your mother hostage, he once said to a group complaining of writer's block, and you were required to write 100 poems by next week to free her, you could certainly do it. The next thing Marvin did was to assign 100 poems to that class (laughs) for the following week. That's what I call a workshop. (laughs) His assumption was that the first 62 or so would stink. But lo and behold, here's this very fine moment in poem number 63 that was easily worth a week of writing. Marvin had this rule, teacher does all assignments with students. So he also wrote 100 poems that week. That strikes me as incredibly generous and the most valuable thing a teacher can share with his students, more than his knowledge, his practice. The secret practice. If you find the structure and terminology of this talk from outer to inner to secret reminiscent of some Hollywood thriller and the idea of a secret practice of writing evokes some suspense like the idea of a secret practice uh, like like we're the raiders of the lost ark arriving finally at the inner sanctum I would like you to know this is totally intentional The secret practice resides in an inner sanctum It is where you would keep something precious, or something precious would keep itself. Hidden, hard to reach, and protected. Think of the bullion in Fort Knox, the queen in the hive, or the clean room where the semiconductors are assembled. We need an outer practice to be in the arena, and an inner practice in order to show up internally, to become once again susceptible to now in Stafford's terms. But then, what do we do? Answer, we do nothing. For those more actively inclined, the answer is, we keep showing up. We keep writing. The secret practice is a door that opens from the other side. And there's ultimately nothing we can do if it doesn't want to open, which is one of the reasons for not judging your practice. It's not even a process of going through the door. We only know about the door once we've passed through it. The secret practice is, even for the experienced writer, elusive. It is why poets say the only time they feel like poets is when they are writing a poem, not even a short while later, taking a walk or eating a meal, though there may be an afterglow. It is why novelists may have written better at age 45 than at age 55, or vice versa. To speak more practically, the secret practice is the act of surprising ourselves on the page. Richard Hugo makes this point throughout his great book on composition, The Triggering Town, beginning with his description of the second subject. And this is in your handout as well. So Here's Hugo. A poem can be said to have two subjects, the initiating or triggering subject which starts the poem or causes the poem to be written, and the real or generated subject which the poem comes to say or mean and which is generated or discovered in the poem during the writing. That's not quite right because it suggests that the poet recognizes the real subject. The poet may not be aware of what the real subject is, but only have some instinctive feeling that the poem is done. Young poets find it difficult to free themselves from the triggering subject. The poet puts down the line, autumn the title, Autumn Rain. He finds two or three good lines about autumn rain. Then things start to break down. He cannot find anything more to say uh, about, uh, about autumn rain. So he starts making up things. He strains. He goes abstract. He starts telling us the meaning of what he has already said. The mistake he is making, of course, is that he feels obligated to go on talking about autumn rain, because that, he feels, is the subject. Well, it isn't the subject. You don't know what the subject is. And the moment you run out of things to say about autumn rain, start talking about something else. In fact, it's a good idea to talk about something else before you run out of things to say about autumn rain. Start talking about something else. What you plan to say, no matter how clever, is never art. Art is saying what you yourself didn't plan to say. More gracefully put, art is the leap from what you want to say to what the poem wants to say. And the two are never the same. That goes for the novel. That goes for the essay. It's what the page wants to say. The terms of leaping are different in every situation, and because leaps are, by definition, unexpected, the exact process transcends conception and elaboration. This has a lot to do with why you can't paraphrase a great piece of writing, though you can easily summarize and often improve upon in that summary a not-so-great piece of writing, one perhaps having to do with autumn rain. Hugo's idea of the second subject is just one way to label the secret practice. I've mentioned surprising yourself, which is what Frost stressed, and leaping, a favorite word of Robert Bly. The French poet Paul Eluard has maybe the most elegant way of describing the inner sanctum. It's a quote from him. There is another world, and it is in this one. Keats called the space negative capability, where we open completely into uncertainty, suspending all thinking and judgment. Hemingway called it luck. Every time he spoke of the necessary ingredients for him to write, the space, the equipment, time of day, etc., luck was on that list. Paul Simon had a similar response when an interviewer asked him about the moment he wrote Like a Bridge... Over troubled water, I will lay me down. A line so familiar in our popular culture, we may have forgotten how brilliant it is. Simon said he was alone in his apartment at the time, sitting on the same couch he and the interviewer was sitting on, scribbling on a pad, but he had no idea where the line came from, and after he wrote it, he felt grateful, grateful, This is the door opening from the other side. Nobody but Paul Simon could have written the line, though Simon feels like someone else wrote it. It probably doesn't sound very helpful to say that all we can do is show up and wait for luck, even though showing up is no accident, and most of art, and most great artists beyond that can't tell you how they do it. But there are some Who mindfully promote a secret practice and can articulate how they do it. And this is something I'll call knocking on the door. When Richard Hugo advises us to start talking about something else, preferably a thought or subject we have discovered during the act of writing, that is a way to knock on the door. In his essay, Writing Off the Subject, He recommends that students recognize and cultivate gateways to get off the initiating subject. Hugo says his own gateway is the property of sound. The sound of a word he has put down will remind him of the music of another. And accepting that other word into the poem helps him break his allegiance to the initiating subject and to conventional logic and he forms new allegiances, leading him into deeper, more promising places where there are chorus girls in grain silos. Images and engaging in sense detail can also do the job of getting us off the subject. Actually, my class, we did this yesterday, so they'll recognize that technique. Um, I would, uh, as can also the uh, as can voice and persona as can non-sequiturs or collaging. I would venture to say that the way each writer achieves escape velocity from the initiating subject is the key to their uniqueness. Stephen Dunn's signature move is what he calls working against his drift. Whenever he has an idea, especially a compelling one, his habit is to negate it or readjust it in the spirit of the old chess maxim, if you see a good move, look for a better one. By working against his drift, a particularly good practice for intellectual writers, Stephen Dunn can regularly arrive at claims such as I hate your good reasons, from his poem, to a terrorist. Claims that are so startling, and so him. In Knocking on the Door, writing off the subject, or working against our drift, we are calling on reality to be our muse. This is the reality most people avoid. It isn't interested in our plans because it has something far deeper in mind it would like to use us for. Reality works through change and disruption, and it's hiding in front of our face where several trillion neutrinos are passing through each of us and out the other side at the speed of light. If we are to actually write, we need the three practices to put us in touch over and over with this reality, that other world that is in this one. So I hope you're still alive. We will now have a ro- robust discussion among a very good-looking audience. Uh, but a- any questions, anything really that's coming up for you? This, this lady in the back. Do you see this lady in the white, Anna? Yes. Could people wait for the microphone so that they can become famous?
2: Is this the muse you're speaking of?
1: Is what the muse
2: Uh, this other sense of reality that comes to you?
1: I mean, I think reality is kind of the the muse of all muses. I mean, that's what I see. And any muse that works for you is, is probably the way reality manifests for you in a unique way. And maybe that goes back to the very beginning, to these artists talking about their idiosyncrasies, you know, I would say obey your idiosyncrasy. I would never make fun of any writer's idiosyncrasy as long as it gets them, you know, into a good practice. Um, so, how the muse manifests to you, I would pay attention to that. I mean, reality, Nabokov said that reality was a word that can only be used in quotation marks. So, but the way it shines through, you know, the particular. I mean, I had a friend who. Her writing got like ten times better every time she approached the subject of money. It just came alive, and um, you know that's the way it manifested for her. That was that was her third rail or whatever you want to call it, her ambrosia. Does that help? Yes. Anyone else had a question or opinion or reflection or protest? Or this lady in the glasses?
3: So, how do you know when the door opens? How can you tell when what you're writing should be thrown away, and then when that door opens, and you've kind of reached that second subject?
1: Interestingly, you don't generally know while you're writing. Maybe, maybe sometimes. And of course, every writer is different. But I don't generally know when I'm writing. Um, you know, in baseball, uh, often when they interview a hitter who you know hit some key home run in a game. They said, what, what was that experience like? What was the, how did you feel when you hit that ball? You know, These are these trenchant questions of contemporary journalists. How did you feel? And invariably, the hitter says, I was just trying to make contact. I wasn't trying to yank it out of the park. And often, if, if you try to yank it out of the park, you're going to ground to second base. But um, golfers say this, too. That the ball that goes straight and far, it feels like nothing. So while you're writing it, it kind of feels like nothing. Uh, you're in the zone. And um, because if it felt like something, you'd kind of be aware of yourself. And this is something else happening. I think think what happens is afterwards, there might be a lot of emotion. You look back at it or you read it to someone and you say, well, you know, I I think I have something here. Um, But when it's happening, um, I think it's too busy happening. And I think, you know, there's so much... uh, you know, legend and story about the artist's life, and you know the storminess and um, the inspiration and the drama. And uh, I think it's more like that clean room inside that lab. You know, they're doing what they're doing. Nobody sees it. I mean, it's obvious that the, the, the secret practice is the hardest to talk about. Sometimes other people will point out something, and, and they 'll mirror something, and you 'll say, "Wow, OK, I might have something here." or you'll read it at um, I used to do this early in my writing life. If there were no writing friends around and I was really excited about something new, I 'd find some open mic in New York City there's all these open mics, and I just go there. And you know, the open mic is like the waiting room of the veterinarian. you know. Really, I mean, this one's got three legs. That one's got manes. This one is allergic to its fur. I mean, I mean, it's pretty embarrassing. I think you know, it's, an open mic is like an embarrassment to all concerned. But I would read it, and I'd read it at the open mic. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't workshop critiquing, or there might not be any reaction. But there's a felt sense in the room that actually showed me where the poem was hot and where it may be not as good as I thought it was. Just read it in a room of people. So often it's that, it's the mirroring. Uh, This lady in the middle, in the blue blouse, has her hand up.
4: How do you work with the tension between being in the white room and then also uh, needing community and um, reality or grounding in your writing practice? And how important is it to be in community with writers to keep forging on?
1: C- can you keep the mic for a second? You said the white room?
4: Well, you said the, um, to be in the clean room, you know, the, you know yeah. that inner room. Yeah. Uh, so what, that tension between sort of going to your inner space versus then working in community and that tension. So how important is it to work with that tension?
1: I think this is different for every writer. I mean, there are writers who are famous recluses, you know, J.D. Salinger um, and others. Um, and then others were really social James Baldwin, who was my favorite writer growing up, when he lived in Istanbul, he would have, just have these parties over his apartment, he was an incredibly social person, and then everyone left and at 2am he started writing um, I think it's kind of just obeying your own nature you know, what, f- what feeds you um, I, I love going into company with other people, I mentioned William Zinser, he had uh, a listed phone number his whole life And no email address. He died when he was 90. How old was he? 91. It was last year. And um, he loved the phone ringing. He hated writing. (laughs) He loved interruptions. (laughs) He was horrible. But, you know, he found a practice. I mean, that was his way. Everyone's got to find their way. And one thing Marvin loved saying to people, there's no one way to write, and there's no right way to write. And I think that includes the outer, inner, and secret practice. You know, you, you find your way. Um, I'm pretty good at um, boundaries. I'm pretty good at not letting, you know, po-biz, the social head or, or the business head, get in the way of the writing head. I don't wind up writing for an audience I shouldn't be writing for because I want, you know, the piece of writing to succeed. You know, I let the art be the art. And then I don't get bothered if you know, the rejection is the rejection or someone feels this or feels that. That doesn't affect my writing. I have a pretty good boundary. But yeah, I, th- I sense you're talking about good, healthy boundaries. And you know, find yours. What's yours? What do, you, do you have a technique?
4: Well, I, I sort of feel like I need that um, other reader. I, I sort of feel like I do need the reader um, yeah. to give... Um, at least some tether, you know, a tether to a writing practice.
1: The reader needs to tether you to a writing practice. No, no, no.
4: Needs to needs to sort of um, tether the words. In other words, to to just provide a um, a feedback of some sort.
1: Okay. Of course, you know, Rilke in that quote, he was talking about that as well. Don't even write to me anymore. <laughs> Go away. Um, But everyone's different. I mean, Rilke went to, you know, some, you know, Alpine lone cabin, you know, somewhere for months at a time and, and had some kind of extreme experience and starved himself and, you know, whatever. He's a crazy German romantic. What do you want? But people do find their ways. Virginia Woolf wrote from 9 to 12 every day and nothing else. 9 to 12. That was her practice. The rest of the day, she was actually a very social person. They ran a press, she had love affairs, she did a lot of correspondence, I mean, you know, she had her day. Want to hear a scary sentence? Annie Dillard says, how you spend your day is how you spend your life. But this lady had a question. (laughs)
3: It's more of a comment, and thank you for putting, really straightening some thinking up for me. Um, It's about 25 years I've been writing, 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 and trying different things, writing circles and looking for inspiration. Um, I found a book, and what you said just really clicked with. this. It's called, I think it's called The Daily Rituals of Artists, and it covers sculptors and writers and yeah, painters yeah. and and there were two that really stayed out stand, stood out for me yeah. and one was Benjamin Franklin and his schedule because it tells his schedule it's crazy it's <laughs> it amazing but the other one was um, oh gosh I, my mind just went blank on the name but he wrote naked yeah. in his garden every morning mm-hmm. and when you just said that I mean I tried it I actually did try writing naked and I'm all for it. That's great. <laughs> I got very cold. <laughs> but it really kept me grounded in reality.
1: <laughs> My well, inner Chekhov pra- said, write it cold. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but I just wanted to share that with you and the fact, thank you, because I really, really, really made something clear to me for myself, this inner practice. And... Uh, Anyway, the reality, The change something, do something different. Or uh-huh. what did you say? You said, um, oh, I can't even read my writing. <laughs> but it was about, um, don't concern yourself with inspiration. Insight will come with practice. Don't just learn, train. No, that wasn't what you said. What was it that you said about change? Or try something different, or. Uh,
1: oh, the secret practice is yeah, find a way to yeah. yeah switch out, switch your allegiance. Yeah, okay. yeah, to switch. What was um, you say that it straightened out something? I appreciate that. I'm interested though. What was crooked? For me. Yeah, I'm always interested in this.
3: Oh, um, I'm sh- let's see. The thought was, oh, I can see where that would help to to try it. Every, every time you sit down to write, don't just get in this lazy pattern of, okay, I'm going to sit down and write, and write, and write, and then I get yeah. really tired. But try something different.
1: Yeah. That's I um, critique people through the mail. I mean, I, I mentioned that in the talk as part of how I try to make a living. And so people send me their poems, and I, I see the same uh, fundamental uh, <clears throat> lapses again and again and again. And I could continue to take these people's money. I could actually use the money, but uh, I, I can't do it. And I tell them at a certain point, I, I, we can't do this. This is not helping you. And they want to send me more and more. And you know they enjoy the exchange. And they said, well, what should I do? I said, you should take the free writing intensive. And they said, well, um, I can't get to New Hampshire or Iowa or someplace. I said, well, you know, get me 10 people in a living room. And people do it, actually. You know, I, I go to San Luis Obispo, Berkeley, uh, Rockville, Maryland, uh, all kinds of places. I'll be in Nanuet doing this, and b- basically it, w- it wasn't just holding out a shingle for something else I do, as much as telling them, you've got to look at the way you're practicing. You know, Because you're showing me poems that, that have been over for a long time, and you're just reworking them, and, re- and, and nothing fundamental is shifting in you. This, we see this. I know a meditation teacher, he says the same thing. He sees people meditating for 20 years of practice and nothing is changing in them because of the way they're practicing. And they can be very dutiful. You know, they have the outer practice, but they don't have the inner practice. And I know someone, he died recently, I won't say his name. He's a, he's a wonderful man, he's one of the kindest people I've ever met. He has an outer practice and an inner practice. He can't do the third. He just can't do it. And he tried so hard. He had a lot of money in his life. And he would take himself to these passionate outings. He would go to um, uh, France and visit the grave of Brodsky and write a sequence about Brodsky. And it would totally suck. But But he'd be in there. He'd be doing it. You know, he, 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 he lived his life by this. All he did, he had a million poetry books. He had a signed copy of a Whitman book. You know, that's fantastic. He couldn't do the inner practice. You need all three. Um, this lady back here, all the way to the back. Do men ask questions? Oh, okay, so this gentleman next in the khaki shirt.
2: Um, very often there's something said in a workshop like, um, or by an instructor to um, think about who your audience is. And I'm wondering how, where do you place that idea um, when you think of these three categories? Because how do you avoid letting the audience guide what you're writing? or influence it and take away from your secret practice.
1: Yeah, I would, I would put the audience maybe in the, um, uh, in the inner practice. And you know, categories are only as good as they are useful. I decided to put this framework up. I mean, you've heard this advice, frankly, all week, haven't you? I mean, it's kind of a theme people are saying. Uh, I ran into Kyle downtown. Is Kyle here? And Kyle and I were talking. he was telling me about this novel, and you know, he was just saying, I am so much more interested in these translated European writers because they're, they're writing into the questions and the open spaces and the mysteries and things like that. So, but just to stay with this framework, I would put the, the consideration of audience into the inner practice. And um, it's funny, people say very contradictory things. Good writers say very contradictory things to one another about audience. Um, You know, I was told early that the audience is someone um, every bit as intelligent as you, only less well-informed. I I take the audience more into account, though, uh, in revision. And you may not know it from this talk, but I love revision. I actually love it more than composing. This talk is mostly about composing and training yourself to keep producing in a useful way where you grow. But I think Revision is where, for me, the audience comes in especially. And I've said that 90% of revision is putting yourself into the shoes of the audience. What does an ordinary reader need right now? What do they not know? And if I can't do that, I'm going to lose my reader. And it's not like I'm guided by fear of their judgment. I'm just thinking about, what, what do they need? You know, good, good southern hospitality. You know, and maybe they need to be startled, frankly, or challenged. They need a good time. They need to be shocked. Um, you know, mostly I feel they need me to break their heart. But whatever it is, they need, and and it's the revision mostly. Usually, when I'm composing, I'm just the audience is at bay.
2: Thank you. I, I just what I also was trying to say was, how do you avoid? Before the revision, when you're, when you're writing, how do you avoid being restricted by the feeling of who's my audience? And That's basically... I
1: think that's the outer practice. I think the, uh, the judgments that you're going to get because, you know, um, like this woman in New Jersey who's this working mother who says to her family, guess what, I've got to do this and you're on your own for a month or whatever it is, I mean those kinds of judgments what are they going to think of me? I think we take care of that in the outer practice. We decide beforehand that I'll publish under a pen name because certain pe- people in my family are alive. They're never going to understand this. They may understand it in 300 years, which is what I try to write into when I think about being fair. I want to be fair from that perspective. But I can't worry if they're going to think well or poorly. Let them write their own memoir. You know, This is my memoir. And so I think there's things we can do in the outer practice. Going to a different place to write. Um, I said this in one of the meetings with someone, uh, Nadine Gordimer, the South African writer, when she won the Nobel Prize, was interviewed, and she was asked, you know, how did you do it? How did you write these dangerous, fearful things that are going to just get your society after you? And she said, I wrote as if I were writing from the grave. You know, that's a move in the outer practice, I think. You know, that's, that's a room of your own. Whatever you need to do to set that up, I'd see if you could take care of that beforehand so you're not trying to juggle that extra... It's, writing is hard enough. Thank you. You're welcome. Maybe just one more because it's, it's noon. Is that okay, Anna?
0: Yes, just time for one more.
1: Okay, one more. Oh, this gentleman here in the khaki shirt...
5: In listening, uh, I'm not a writer. I'm a painter. But uh, in listening to you, you know, and I was, I liked your uh, your crossover into uh, the sports arena. And I'm thinking that uh, um, cross training, you know, from painting to writing and so on yeah. and so forth. Uh, I once was in a workshop called Poets and Painters up in Emma Lake, Saskatchewan, and mm. it was it was rather amazing. But uh, yeah. a little story, just uh, honoring what you said and what was here. Um, I was a student in northern Minnesota. It was very cold, watercolor painting in the winter. I don't know what the temperature was. Let's say 10 or 0. And my instructor came by. We were inside, and I'm looking out. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm painting snow and cold. He said, well, then, why don't you take your stuff and go outside? So I took all the stuff and went outside. And uh, I, I came running in. I said, the paint is freezing. He said, get some alcohol in the water. So I added alcohol in the water. I went back outside. My hands are cold. I came back in. I got my big chopper gloves. I took bigger brushes. I threw away the little sables. Couldn't use them. The paintings all changed on their, on their own because of uh, immersing myself in a very different environment. They looked cold and broad, strange to me. And uh, I remember it mostly now as a lesson as I got older that I could take uh, when I was more... When when you're a voyeur in the painting, or when you're in it, uh, as say Pollock, Pollock uh, was in the painting, not in this way to the painting. Yeah, and I I, got that when I was listening to you.
1: Yeah, if I were to map that onto what I was saying, this just reminds me of a good mentor. I mean, there's such a difference between a teacher and a mentor. You know, sharing their practice with you. You know. There are the kind of teachers who are not in our lineage. There is no immediate tribal recognition. You pick up your pen and you take notes. It won't do to fight with a teacher, even a bad teacher, because they may accidentally say something useful. Exploit them, be greedy, and just stick around and wait for something you can use. But when you meet your mentor, that's, that's a lineage holder. And, and you put yourself in that mind stream, in that lineage. and. Um, obey (laughs) because they're being very generous trust and obey you know I, i learned that teaching in oklahoma the students grew so fast so much faster than teaching in new york in new york they have intelligence and talent in oklahoma they had devotion and openness devotion and openness beats intelligence and talent any day of the week wasn't even close. They trusted me. I mean, if I wasn't trustworthy, that would be a bad situation. You know, they had one in Waco. You know, <laughs> around that time. But um, uh, thank you very much. You've been a very good-looking and intelligent audience.